So, my dear faithful, we begin our mission. A mission that I have to explain to you the practice of the true devotion to Mary as given to us by St. Louis de Montfort. So, throughout the course of this five-day mission, I will explain to you the necessity of this devotion, the motives for practicing it, the benefits for practicing it, and how you do it, how you perform the devotion. So, it's primarily a question of me teaching you what St. Louis intends to teach you in his book. In his book, which is at once very sublime and profound, but very compact. And there, therefore, there's much to be drawn from it. I've placed in the back little booklets that give a summary of the book that you can take, perhaps one for a family, because we don't have many, that are, provide you a certain study guide for this book. So, to get started with what... I want to explain to you. This is a devotion. The true devotion, Mary, is a devotion. Generally speaking, a devotion is a way by which we establish a relationship with God or with one of the saints. And the way in which you design your devotion, because you can design any devotion you want, it depends on your understanding. Your understanding of the faith and your understanding of the plans of, uh, of God. You know that those who make roads, who make routes or maps to get to different places, depending on their understanding of the route, they will make a good map. So if you want to make a proper map, a proper road to get to heaven, you're going to be good at doing it, depending on your understanding of the faith, your understanding of God and how to get to Him, or your understanding of, of the saints and how to imitate them. So... These devotions are precisely the how, the means, the means by which we establish a relationship with God. What I want to emphasize is they're not something that just sort of happens. We just sort of do devotion, and it's a good thing. But there's a proper way to design a devotion. There's a proper way to sort of orient yourself towards God. And there's also... I wouldn't say improper ways, but maybe clumsy ways, ways which are not as good as other ways. And we who are Catholics who have the richness of a 2,000-year history with so many great figures to teach us and to show us figures who we know had a very close relationship with God, we go to them and we say, hey, tell me how I need to reform my relationship with God. How do I unite myself with God? You did a great job at it. Teach me. And so with this true devotion to Mary that I'm to explain to you, it's exactly this. It comes to us from the hands of a saint. It falls in line with the constant tradition of the church. It's been embraced around the world, extremely popular, we could say, in the past 150 years. And so, it is of the highest value. The book was hidden for 130 years. It was written in 1712. And when it was written, St. Louis himself said, I foresee that Satan will not want this book to be published. He will not want it to be spread around. And that somehow, he's going to seek to destroy it. And its author. And he's going to keep it hidden. Perhaps in a chest somewhere. And that's exactly what happened. The manuscript was buried in a chest of 
the Montfortian Fathers, the, the group of priests that was founded by St. Louis de Montfort. And it was only in 1842, 130 years after it was written, that one of the Montfortian Fathers happened to open this chest in the archives of, of the Montfortian Fathers and see this manuscript and recognize the handwriting as that of St. Louis de Montfort. And since that time, the book has been published and republished and translated into many different languages because it was obviously written under a special inspiration, a special inspiration from God and a special inspiration designed for our times, specially arranged for this age of Mary in which we live. And I will explain that in a later conference on the third day. But the first pope after it was published, Pius IX, he said that St. Louis de Montfort's devotion to Mary was the best and the most acceptable form of devotion to Our Lady. The Pope after him, Leo XIII, he granted a plenary indulgence to those who made St. Louis' act of consecration to Our Lady. And, in fact, he himself did this on his own deathbed. He renewed his own act of consecration and invoked the aid of St. Louis, when, who he himself had beatified. So Pope Leo XIII beatified St. Louis in 1888, and he was very devoted to St. Louis' devotion, true devotion to Mary. St. Pius X, we may say, gave a certain magisterial authority to the thoughts of St. Louis, in that he wrote an encyclical called Adiam Ilu. This was an encyclical 50 years after the declaration of the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, which took place in 1854. So in 1904, St. Pius X writes this encyclical on Our Lady. And the Superior General of the Montfortian Fathers was visiting the Pope, having a, uh, a visitation, and St. Pius X told him, before I wrote that encyclical, I reread the work of St. Louis. So he already knew it. He reread it. And in fact, he used some of the very same expressions that St. Louis uses in his book in order to write his encyclical. The Mon this, this superior general of the, of the Montfortian Fathers, he asked the Pope, he said, could you write a letter of recommendation saying to all the Catholic faithful in the world that this book is good for them to read? And the Pope said, Certainly, I will do this. Hand me a piece of paper. Hand me a piece of paper. And right on the spot, he wrote out this letter recommending the reading of True Devotion to Mary. And he gave an apostolic blessing to whoever read the book. Now, for you to understand why you need to practice this devotion, we need to explain to you the designs of divine providence. Effectively, I'm here to tell you a secret. This is the language of St. Louis himself. And he says at the very beginning of the secret of Mary, this secret is only for receptive souls. It's only for the good souls, the elect, the docile souls. 
And I have to confess to you that I'm, I'm not here by invitation. I'm here by inviting myself. I'm here during a holiday period of, at the seminary because I want to give you the secret. Because I feel it's so important that people have this secret. That you who want to save your souls, who hopefully want to become holy, that you have the secret. The secret is meant for our times. It's meant for us to use as the easy, the short, the perfect path. Not just to heaven, but to holiness. And so, I first asked the Tainong if, if it would work out, work out for me to come down, and it, it, it didn't work out. It was not the right time. But it was the right time for you. And so I'm here to tell you the secret. If you can imagine God and you, and the path, by which God goes to you, and the path by which you go to God. The first three days, we will consider this path by which God comes to you, and especially the role that Our Lady has in this path. And then the last two days, we will consider the path by which you go to God. So, in this path by which God comes to you, we're going to consider the whole human history, the whole plan of salvation, And we're going to start with the relationship of God the Father with Our Lady, and then God the Son, and then God the Holy Ghost. And we will follow the life of Our Lady chronologically, before she was born, during her life, after her life, up to 2013, right at the present moment. So this is the plan of these first three days. And if you have understood this plan of divine providence, you have the secret. That's the secret. It's, it's the secret. It's, it's the mind of God. It's the thinking of God. It's the wisdom of God that I want to teach you. This is this obsession of St. Louis to pursue the wisdom of God, to embrace the wisdom of God. That's why he writes this book called The Love of the Eternal Wisdom. He seeks after this wisdom in order to embrace it and live by it. Really what I want to to prove to you is that God himself once has established Our Lady as the most perfect path to reach our Lord. And so I need to prove that to you. I need to prove that to you. So we have to start at the beginning the very creation of mankind. We know that God doesn't do anything wrongly, imperfectly even. Nothing that he does has any flaw in it whatsoever. And so, he created all things. All things proceeded from him. Nothing can exist without God. Nothing can be any more than nothing without God. So he brings this beautiful universe into being with everything working in perfect harmony, whether it be the natural forces and the movement of the planets and the interaction of all the various bodies that are out there in the universe, or we can consider the circle of life, what's called the circle of life here below, the food chain by which you have this perfect interaction among 
the animals and the plants and men and the natural forces and the lakes and the forest and the trees and, and all these things, this unbelievable harmony and order that certainly still exists today. But God wanted to create also a creature who wouldn't just automatically do what he wanted. He just didn't, wouldn't automatically follow his plan. But he wanted to have a creature who had free choice. Sometimes people blame God for sin. They blame God for the evils in the world. But you see, that if God is going to give you the power of free choice, then he has to give it to you. He has to give you the ability to choose wrongly. He gives you the ability to choose rightly. He gives you the ability to choose wrongly. And if you truly have free choice, you can choose either way. And so he gives to man this incredible power of knowledge and free will. While the rest of the universe automatically lines up with the harmony of the universe. Not so man. Man has to line up with the harmony of the universe by free choice, by his own choice, or not line up with it. And we know what happened. According to Dante, it's pure speculation. Adam and Eve were only six hours in the garden before they turned against the will of God. And it was man who introduced disharmony into this perfect creation. He introduced that spanner in the works of God that turned things upside down. This is how we have to see all evils in this world. Where do they come from? They come from man messing up God's harmony. That's where all evil comes from. From an abuse of freedom. An abuse of freedom. So the result was the fall. This terrible destruction worked by sin. A destruction that certainly penetrates the material creation such that we have a lot of disharmony in the material world now. You have all these natural forces. You all just have Cyclone Oswald wreaking its destruction on your own coast. This is natural forces out of control from sin. We have earthquakes. We have tsunamis. We have these volcanic eruptions. We have all of these uh, disharmonious forces wreaking destruction because of sin, which would not have existed did sin not exist. God didn't design creation to have sort of raw material forces going wild, out of control. But for us, we know the punishments imposed upon Adam because of his sin. He had to work the earth with great toil and sweat. He had the punishment of death laid upon him. He would have to have his body and soul separated. This rebellion between the body and soul. And this is perhaps the most difficult thing for us to deal with. This rebellion, not that's outside of us, the rebellion that's inside of us because of sin. That we have to deal with on a daily basis. 
So that our lower nature is always pushing us to do what that which by our reason we know is wrong. And we have to continually fight against it. And we can't ever say we have it beat. We may win one victory, but it's immediately back. It immediately comes back. We have this struggle until the end of our days. We'll never stop. We can see sin as an incredible burden on creation. St. Paul himself says that nature is groaning. Nature wants deliverance from sin. He sort of personifies the material forces as if they're groaning under the weight of this disharmony introduced in creation by man and they want to be delivered from it. Just as we ourselves, we hope one day to be delivered from this rebellion within ourselves through eternal happiness in heaven. This is our hope. But the major problem that man had after the destruction that he had introduced into creation is that he had no solution. It's very easy to create problems. It's very easy to destroy. Any one of you could, could destroy a, a skyscraper. It's, it's not a big deal. You just take sufficient dynamite and you will blow it up. But I reckon that none of you could build one. Man, in order to fix the problem of sin, needed infinite power. Sin is infinite. We can work infinite destruction, but not infinite repair. This is our problem. And so man, facing his destiny after sin, facing his relationship with God, he sees only destruction with no way to fix it. You need, if you, if you offend an infinite God, you need infinite reparation. And no finite man can make infinite reparation. And this is our problem. This is not God's problem. We know that it was not fitting for God to leave his creation in the ruin that man had caused it. And in fact, it would, it's a terrible thought. It's a terrible thought. I mean, there's no obligation on the part of God to redeem us. There's no real obligation. As I say, it's our problem, not his problem. But it would have been completely unfitting, we could say, for God to allow wickedness and disorder to triumph over goodness and beauty forever. It would have been terrible for God to sort of step back and leave things as they were in the wreck created by man. And so he ordained from all eternity that his son should come upon earth to fix sin. Without our Lord Jesus Christ, we are nothing. We are absolutely nothing. We are lost. You cannot do anything worthy of heaven without our Lord. Nothing. St. Louis, he wants to make it very, very clear the purpose of this devotion. We want to unite ourselves with our Lord. We need our Lord desperately. Without Him, we cannot achieve the very meaning of our existence. We are totally lost forever. Just to read you uh, 
one of the very beautiful passages in this book. So, it's not just brilliant on the devotional level. It's brilliant on the literary level. The, 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 the beauty of expression of St. Louis is incredible. He says, Jesus Christ, our Savior, true God and true man, must be the last end of all our devotions. Otherwise, they are false and delusive. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is our only Master who has to teach us, our only Lord on whom we ought to depend, our only Head to whom we must be united, our only Model to whom we should conform ourselves, our only Physician who can heal us, our only Shepherd who can feed us, our only Way who can lead us, our only Truth whom we must believe, our only Life who can animate us, and our only All in all things who can satisfy us. There has been no other name given under heaven except the name of Jesus by which we can be saved. The solution to sin is our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the solution to sin. Ordained from all eternity by God. Even if you lived before our Lord, you could only be saved by believing in Him before He came. You had to believe in the Messiah to come in order to get grace. Grace from what? Grace from the cross that didn't yet exist. David got grace from the cross. Moses got grace from the cross. Isaac, Jacob, they all got grace from the cross that was to come later on in the future. They believed in it. They hoped in it. They hoped in the Redeemer to come. But we may say that God has a bit of a problem quote-unquote problem. He's going to send a Redeemer to fix sin. But He's going to send a Redeemer to a world that's totally affected by sin. As I said, sin affects material creation as well as the spiritual soul of men. And so there's no place in the world, we could say even in the universe, it's not contaminated by sin. It's not poisoned somehow by sin. So how is God going to send down His only begotten Son into this world that's infected by sin? If you had a doctor that had to go in and cure a patient, and in this room where the patient was, there was this corrosive air that even a gas mask, if you had it on, didn't matter. It would just eat into your clothing and into your skin. How would this doctor go in and cure this patient? He has knowledge, he has the skill, he has the ability but he can't go in the room. That's a sort of picture of a quote-unquote problem. Obviously, God could have done whatever he wanted. He could have done whatever he wanted. He could have sent our Lord down from heaven in an extraordinary fashion, that is, without a mother. But he did not wish to do that. He did not wish to do that. He wanted to give all of us a mother, by giving the Redeemer a mother. But if he's going to do that, he has to create something new, something unique. He has to create an immaculate conception. He has to create a being, the only being in the whole universe 
that's not contaminated, that's not touched by sin in any way, never, ever been touched by sin, not defiled. And this is exactly what he does. He creates a woman so blessed and favored by God that if you were able to take a picture of the whole universe, you would see it all black, and you would see one tiny point of light, one creature who has this connection, this pure connection with God. So that there was one safe place for our Lord to come into this earth. The Virgin Mary can be compared to the dawn which ends the night. Because the centuries which preceded her had been in darkness, Mary Most Holy is the true forerunner of the light of grace. She is the star that announces the Son of Justice, who will be born from her womb. In fact, all the time which passed from the fall of Adam to the birth of Our Lady was an endless darkness, a long, deep, icy night. So we take this picture of, from the fall of Adam up to the Immaculate Conception. And it's absolutely hopeless for mankind. 4,000 years sort of wandering in a state of sin without having a Redeemer, without having a single creature who has conquered the devil, over whom the devil does not have dominion. And in this night, if you imagine yourself standing outside at night, you don't have the city lights or anything, and you're waiting, and you're hoping that somehow, because you can't see a thing, you're hoping somehow, a light will come somewhere. And then all of a sudden, there's this little glimmer, this little glimmer of light on the horizon. And this glimmer of light is Our Lady. It is Our Lady. We have to try to imagine this moment of the Immaculate Conception before you have absolute darkness for mankind. 4,000 years of darkness. And then the day of her conception, you have a new creation entering the world. Something immaculate, something unstained. And with that, you have the conqueror of the devil. The conqueror of the devil has arrived. She who crushes her, his head in the very moment of her conception. That's the beginning of her crushing his head. He, hasn't, he reaches out to grab her and his head is crushed. He doesn't get her. He doesn't get her. And to this day, he's never achieved a single victory over Our Lady. And so, evil is not going to triumph. The devil will be vanquished. There will be a solution. Now this great privilege of the Immaculate Conception that God gave to Our Lady had to be followed by others. She had to have other things bestowed upon her by God the Father. She is the daughter of God the Father. And so He chooses her from all eternity. He knows how He's going to fix sin. He's going to send His only begotten Son to be our Redeemer through a woman. And this woman is going to be the mother of God. And for her to be the mother of God, the proper mother of God, he's going to have to endow her 
St. Louis says that God the Father gives to Our Lady, as it were, His own fruitfulness, His own ability to produce. We know that in the Trinity, from all eternity, God the Father begets God the Son. So what does God the Father do to Our Lady? He gives her the power to bring forth God the Son. His same power. It's not exactly the same. It's not at all the same, in fact. But it's, it's, you see the comparison of St. Louis. He says, God the Father begets God the Son from all eternity. And Our Lady begets God the Son. She brings Him forth as well. So as if God the Father is giving her His own fruitfulness, His own ability to produce God the Son. And He gives her also the ability to produce all of His members as well, which is us. He has to make her full of grace. He says, a sea, which in Latin is mare, a sea is an assembling of waters. You have many waters. And Maria is an assembling of graces. God collects all of His graces and He pours them into Our Lady. And this is why she is full of grace. And what we must understand with Our Lady is that there is a special preparation of her soul. Because she is to be the dwelling place of God Himself, He has to prepare her soul and her body, her body as well, to be a special dwelling place. Now, if our Lord is to take all of His genetic material from our lady. He's, he's to have a human mother, but not a human father. Then it's very important that God prepare her body as well as her soul. That He make her beautiful. That He make her beautiful. And that she impart to Him a human nature that is beautiful as she is. Some spiritualists more poetically than theologically speak of the great mercy of our Lord that's seen in the gospel and speak of our lady communicating, quote unquote teaching that to our Lord because she begets him, she gives him his human nature, she gives him his body, it completely comes from him and so he quote unquote learns this incredible tender mercy from our lady. But this is not either St. Louis or myself making this up. In the prayer in Compline, that comes right after the Salve Regina, certain times of the year, it says the following, O Almighty, everlasting God, who by the cooperation of the Holy Ghost did prepare the body and the soul of Mary, glorious virgin and mother, to become a worthy dwelling for thy son. The beginning of creation, God prepares a place, a garden for the first man and woman. A place in which they are to dwell and to take their pleasure. For the second Adam, God does not prepare a place, but a person. And He specially forms Our Lady such that she be His paradise, His earthly paradise. So the womb of Our Lady is the earthly paradise for our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to learn to contemplate often Our Lady 
from this perspective, Our Lady as the perfect dwelling place created by God for our Lord, an earthly paradise for our Lord. In the Litany of Our Lady, we invoke her several times from this perspective. We call her such things as a spiritual vessel, a vessel of honor, the Ark of the Covenant, the Tower of Ivory, the House of Gold. These are all containers. They're all perfect containers, lovely, beautiful containers. And this is what's going on here. God creates the perfect recipient for himself in Our Lady. For St. Louis, the mystery of the Incarnation is the central mystery of this devotion to Our Lady. We must come back to this first joyful mystery time and again to understand properly the role that God has created for His own Mother. This is, in fact, how we must see Our Lady at Mass. We can imagine Our Lady as the chalice. The chalice, which is a beautiful, pure, golden vessel with its cup open, extended towards heaven to receive our Lord Jesus Christ, to receive, upon the words of consecration, the coming of our Lord. Now, it's an incredible thing for God to rely on anybody to accomplish His work. But this is exactly what's going on. I'm going to be using the word dependence very often. The word dependence is a key by which we unlock the true devotion to Mary, by which we understand it. The fact is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost all choose to depend on Our Lady to accomplish their work. And so, for God the Father, He sends an angel to make a request of Our Lady that she become the Mother of God, that she consent to His plan for the redemption of mankind. So the angel Gabriel speaks to her, and it's as if the whole human race is waiting in anticipation for her answer. She says no. There's no redemption. There's no redemption. It doesn't happen. Our Lord doesn't come. St. Thomas says that she gives her answer in the person of the whole human race. Her word is as the whole human race giving consent to the plan of God the Father for our redemption. But what I want to emphasize is this is the objective plan of God, that He makes things depend on her consent. And this is an incredible dependence. But it was safe. It was safe. Because as the Father so beautifully said, Our Our Lady had to conceive God in her soul first before she could conceive God in her body. The fact is that at the moment of the Annunciation, Our Lady had already been leading a sinless life to the point to where there was absolutely no disharmony between her and God. She was so perfectly conformed to the will of God that not only did she not commit any sin, but she did not commit any act that stepped away from the perfection 
to which God called her. Sometimes we do good things, but not as good as we could. Our Lady always did good things that were the best that she could do. So, we have to consider this moment wherein Our Lady truthfully declares herself to be the slave of God. So there's no risk on the part of God. Because everything that she does is completely in conformity with the will of God. Of course she's going to line up with his plan. Because she always has lined up with his plan. So he can entrust to her this work of redemption to be an instrument, a necessary instrument for the work of redemption. And so you have one moment the world is completely lost. It's given over to sin. It's in disharmony. There's no solution. Men have no hope to give to God the honor that is due to Him, to give him to Him the infinite homage that is owed to Him. And in the very next moment, upon her consent, God is in the womb of Our Lady. Our Lord enters His own earthly paradise to be formed for a period of nine months. He enters a womb. Very dangerous to enter a womb. Very, very dangerous. For God to become a little fetus in the womb of a young girl? I don't need to tell you how dangerous it is to be a fetus today. You take to me all classes of people and tell me how many die in each class. And those who die most are the ones in the womb. They are the most vulnerable. They are the most helpless of them all. And we say, what is God doing? That He's becoming tiny. He's becoming microscopic in the womb of Our Lady. Infinite power. Infinite knowledge. Infinite greatness. Becoming microscopic. But there's no danger here. There's no danger here. Our Lady is the very best of mothers. Not only is there no danger, this is the very safest place for our Lord. The womb of our Lady is the safest place for our Lord. Created by God Himself for Him to come. And it shows you the contrast between a good mother and a bad mother. You have the two extremes. Our Lady, the very safest place for her child. The modern mothers, the most dangerous place for their child. These mothers don't want to be mothers. They've rejected their own nature. This is disharmony. This is sin. This is rebellion against the the order of God. The church is just stunned by this picture. There's a very beautiful hymn called the Virgo Dei Genitrix. And it says in there, Oh, Virgin Mother of God, what is going on here? You have in your womb He whom the whole world cannot contain. He who created the universe is somehow in your womb. How is this? So Our Lady becomes the Mother of God. And at that moment, you have the Immaculate Heart containing the Sacred Heart. The Sacred Heart and the Immaculate Heart right next to one another. And these hearts are so alike. Even a saint, St. John Eudes, says that they are as one. He says, even though the heart of Jesus be different from that of Mary, 
and that it surpassed her heart infinitely in excellence and sanctity. Yet God has united so closely the two hearts that one can say in truth they are one heart. For they have always been animated by a same spirit and filled with the same sentiments and affections. So we step back and we look at this incredible picture of the plan of God, the providence of God, what He decides from all eternity. He decides that, yes, a Redeemer is to come, but He's to come through a mother. God is going to make Himself tiny, helpless, completely dependent on one of His own creatures. Not just for nine months when He's in the womb, totally, utterly helpless. Not just after He's born and He can't walk and He can't feed Himself and He needs His mother to take care of Him, to bathe Him, to do everything for Him. Not just then. Not just when He's a little toddler. Not just when He's ten years old. For thirty years. For thirty years. And what we have to try to do when we look at this picture is we have to say on the one hand... This is not a mistake on the part of God. God doesn't make mistakes. The, the life of our Lord, unlike, unlike our own lives, everything in the life of our Lord was perfectly in place. There's no mistakes. You can't look at the life of the Lord and say, oh, well, He should have st- stepped to the left on that day instead of to the right. No. Everything is exactly as it should have been, as it had always been planned from all eternity. No mistakes. The 30 years of our Lord spent subject to Our Lady, submissive to her, were planned by God, or Him obeying the will of God the Father. That's a given. That's a fact. And, on the other hand, yes, we, we have to say, why? Why did He do this? It's a mystery. It's a mystery that we seek to penetrate. Let me read to you a very, very important paragraph in this book, paragraph 139, where St. Louis gives us perspective. He says, The good master did not disdain to shut himself up in the womb of the Blessed Virgin as a captive and a loving slave. This is the language of St. Louis. A loving slave. He calls him a slave. And later to be subject and obedient to her for 30 years. It is here that the human mind loses itself. When it seriously reflects on the conduct of the incarnate wisdom. Who willed to give himself to men not directly. But through the blessed virgin. He didn't will to come into the world at the age of a perfect man. Independent of others. But like a poor little babe. Dependent on the care and support of this holy mother. He is infinite wisdom. And yet, he found no more perfect means, no shorter way to accomplish the will of his Father than to submit himself in all things to the Blessed Virgin, not only during the first 8, 10, or 15 years of his life, but for 30 years. And this is the important point. He gave more glory to God his Father during all that time of submission to and dependence on our Blessed Lady than he would have given him if he had employed those 30 years in working miracles 
in preaching to the whole world, and in converting all men. All of which he would have done if he could have thereby contributed more to God's glory. So we look at our Lord spending 30 years with Our Lady, and we say, he could have spent that time working miracles. He could have quickly cut the ties binding him to his family, go off and be independent, preach to the world, convert them to himself. But he didn't. Because there was something better for him to do. To be submissive to Our Lady. I can't explain it. You can't explain it. But this is the wisdom of God. This is the wisdom of God that St. Louis seeks. This is the wisdom of God that we seek to penetrate. And we seek to imitate in this devotion. Our Lord is in the womb of Our Lady. When Our Lord comes in the Eucharist, it's not like normal food. When you eat food, the food turns into you. When you consume Our Lord, you become Him. So it's it's the exact opposite. But Our Lord, in the womb of Our Lady, He took all of His life and nourishment from her. But at the same time, He was nourishing her soul. Our Lady increased in holiness by becoming the Mother of God. She gained a new source of love, the love of a mother. Our Lady has a triple love. You only have a single love. It's impossible for you to have any more than a single love of this triple love. Our Lady has the love of a sinless creature, completely innocent. Our Lady has the love, secondly, of a virgin, an innocent love, excuse me, an undefiled, a pure love. She has an innocent love, she has a pure love, and then she has the love of a mother, a natural love for her son. She has this triple love. She's the only one that can be a virgin mother. No one else can be a virgin mother. This is a new creation by God to create a virgin mother. How can you put these two things together, virgin and mother? It's impossible. It's impossible. Those are a double source of her love. She's both virgin and mother. And then thirdly, the fact that she is completely sinless. So for you and I, I can have the love of a virgin. You can have the love of a, of a mother or a father. But you can't have any more than that. It's just one of them. So our St. Louis, he loves to contemplate this picture that he knows is designed by divine providence. This picture of our Lord in Our Lady's womb. This picture of our Lord in her arms, um, completely independence upon her. Our Lord in His hidden life, being obedient to His mother in all things. He loves to look at that picture and seek to penetrate it and understand it. In His consecration formula, we see how He rejoices in it. He takes pleasure in the supernatural wisdom of God to so design things. The beginning of the consecration formula, it addresses our Lord, it speaks to our Lord Himself, and then later on it speaks to Our Lady. But the words it says to our Lord, it says this, I give thee thanks for that thou hast annihilated thyself, taking the form of a slave in order to rescue me from the cruel slavery of the devil. I praise and glorify thee for that thou hast been pleased to submit thyself to Mary, thy holy mother, 
in all things. St. Louis understands what God is doing. God is showing us what we need to do. He's showing us the perfect path. Because the fact is that God never changes. The plan that He willed for our redemption, this plan for the coming of God to us, is exactly His plan for us going back to God. It's the exact same. He willed that our redemption be accomplished through Our Lady at the coming of our Lord. So, He wills it today. He wills it today. You know that in order to be saved, you have to imitate our Lord. You have to be like our Lord. This is what St. John of the Cross says. He says the soul that would reach transforming union in the divinity of Christ must wholly apply itself to copying the sacred humanity of Christ. You have to copy the life of our Lord. How are you going to copy that? How are you going to copy that? How could you possibly copy it properly without placing yourselves in total submission to Our Lady, total dependence on Our Lady? So it's the first insight that I want to give you into the providence of God and the plans of God for your sanctification. You must think about this, this plan of God. You have to admire it, love it, this incredible plan of divine wisdom, and you have to embrace it. You have to adapt it for yourself. It's so well adapted to our human nature. What would we do without a mother? He wants us to have a mother. And so he goes to these great links to, to give us a mother for our own salvation. So these are the thoughts with which I want to leave you this evening for you to contemplate, especially this first joyful mystery of the rosary, which is the central mystery of his devotion. The dependence that our Lord and God the Father himself will to have on Our Lady in the work of redemption. And so, as a necessary result, the dependence that you should want to place yourself with respect to Our Lady in order to accomplish God's plans for you. And so tomorrow, I will speak to you further about this dependence um, on Our Lady that God wills to have with respect, again, to God the Son, but also to God the Holy Ghost.